0: It's, it's time, time for, for a 30-Minute Manor, 30 Manor Mystery. Mystery! Cue the drums.
1: That was me. I recorded that last night. On
0: GarageBand. band. <laughs> <laughs>
1: in my garage
0: not really but if you didn't get the memo this is our new segment that we have called well 30 minute manner mystery we are going to be doing these once every other week and we're just going to be deep diving into some unsolved and mysterious cases and we're not going to have the mumbo jumbo in the beginning of these we're just going to get right to the point so are you ready emily i'm ready here we fucking go so today's Thirty-minute manor mystery, give or take a couple of minutes, is the mysterious and unsolved Veliska axe murders, which eight people dead after an, eight people were dead after an axe slaying. Okay. So to start us off, we okay. So we're also going to talk about the hauntings that occur into this house today so it's going to be a little bit of murder a little bit of hauntings so this murderous cold case in the house in which it happened in is voted one of the most terrifying places in america so the moore family home which is the family that we're Mm -hmm. going to be talking about in villisca ohio was the setting for one of the most infamous unsolved murders in american history
1: can you visit it today
0: you sure can and we're going to get into that too baby so, built in 1868, this three bedroom, two story, beautiful white house was purchased by local business owners Josiah B. Moore in 1903. Josiah, aged 43, his wife Sarah, aged 39, and their four children, Herman, 11, Mary Catherine, 10, Arthur, 7, and Paul, 5, lived in this home, which was located in a quiet area on 2nd Street in the town of Villisca. Paul Bernardo? No, God, no. <laughs> so the Moore family was known as the, quote, picture-perfect family. They were very tight knit. They enjoyed doing things together around the house. They attended church together, and all of the kids were well-behaved and had the utmost respect for the people around them. The community adored the Moore family. So this family was said to be very smart, caring, loving, and very helpful to those around him- them. So on June 9th, 1912. We're going way back when. Mm-hmm. Around 9:30 9, p.m., the Moore family made their way back home after attending a Christm- Christmas, a Children's Day program hmm. at the local Presbyterian church that Sarah, who was the mother, had organized. Okay. The Moore family was joined by Lena and Ina Stillinger, who were friends of the eldest daughter Mary Catherine, and were invited over for a sleepover that night. Okay,
1: there are your eight people.
0: Yes. So, early the next morning, Mary Peckham, the Moore's neighbor and trusted friend, was up at 5 a.m. hanging laundry. So, she was up and at it, getting those linens on the clothesline.
1: That would be me. That's going to be me.
0: Right. By 7 a.m., she noticed that no one in the Moore home was awake, which was very unusual for this family. Typically, they were up and at it, attending to their livestock, playing outside, handling their chores, etc., so, Mary recalled that, quote, something just felt off. So, the Moore's unattended horses began mm. going crazy and making noises. So, Mary walked over to the Moore home and knocked on the door, but no one answered. She waited and she waited, but she didn't hear any sounds coming from inside. It was dead-ass silent, quote. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> she was very... Getting very worried at this point. So she attempted to open the door, but found it to be locked. So she was growing increasingly nervous. So she went over to let the family's chickens out because they would just like roam in the yard. Yeah,
1: because they have a farm. Usually people at farms are Right. Like...
0: And so Mary let the chickens out, fed the horses, and she decided to call Josiah Moore's brother, Ross Moore, at 8.30 a.m. on the morning of June 10th, 19, uh, 1912. So when Ross showed up to the Moore family home, he too began shouting. He was yelling. He was knocking on the door. He was like, oh my gosh, Mary, this is not like them. Something bad has happened. I have a horrible feeling. We need to get into that house. So he remembered that his brother, Josiah, had actually given him a copy of their house key. So he went to go retrieve it and he came back in and let himself inside the Moore's home where he stumbled across the most chilling sight he has ever seen.
1: Chilling or gruesome?
0: All of it. Okay. I think it was chillingly quiet, is what I put. But oh. the words got mixed up. Okay. So while Mary stood on the porch, Ross went inside the parlor and opened up the guest bedroom, where he found fi- where he found Ina and Lena Stillinger's bodies dead on the floor. Ten-year-olds. Yes. Ross immediately told Mary to call Henry Horton, which was the prim- uh primary peace officer, who arrived shortly thereafter. When he arrived, Henry made his way inside the Moore's house as well, so after a full search of the house, it was revealed that the entire Moore family and the two Stillinger girls had been bludgeoned to death. The murder weapon, they found to be an axe belonging to the Moore's father, Josiah. It was found in the guest bedroom where the two Stillinger sisters lay dead in a pool of their own blood. So the local uh, paper paints a gruesome picture of what Ross and Henry saw that horrible morning. So it read quote, their heads chopped open with an ax, a spectacle so repulsive that it was beyond comprehension. Six more victims murdered in identically the same way lay in the two bedrooms. Okay. So in just one night, eight people had been systematically murdered with an ax and not one person in the surrounding area heard or saw a thing. The murder happened on a peaceful, quiet Sunday night in a town that Iowa called, quote, one of the finest cities in the state.
1: Iowa or Ohio? Iowa. Oh, it's in Iowa? Yes. Oh, okay.
0: So the motive for the murders was unclear as there was no evidence of a robbery or any other reason why the Moore family would have been targeted. Because remember, everybody in this little town loved the Moore mm-hmm. family. So upon investigation, all eight victims appeared to have been killed in their sleep with only one exception. The only sign of struggle apparent was Lena Stillinger. <gasps> her arm was r- arranged in a way that appeared that she had tried to stop the attacker. She also had a small cut on her hand the same arm to suggest that she might have been nicked by the axe during the fight. Lena's nightgown was also pushed up to her waist, and she was wearing no undergarments, leading for law enforcement speculation that the killer sexually molested her or attempted to do so before she died.
1: Hmm.
0: So strangely... The investigators also discovered a four pound slab of raw bacon, which was taken from the icebox and it was carefully wrapped in a dish towel in the same room, which the Stillinger sisters were found, which they have no idea to this day what the fuck that was about. It was just taken from the icebox and put on the floor. Do you think they forgot it? But why would he take it out?
1: Maybe he was just going to steal it. And then when that girl did that, he lit like discombobulated his All for a fucking slab of bacon Four pounds Hey, bacon's expensive now
0: What was it then? (laughs) Oh, I don't know (laughs) So, a bowl of water was also found in the home with spirals of blood swirling through it So police believe that the murderer had washed his hands in this bowl before leaving So side note, so here's kind of where it gets a little haunted. Almost a hundred years later in 2009, a visitor of this home, which is still open, was owned by Darwin and Martha Lynn and attempted to make contact with the Stillinger girls in the very room in which their lives were horrifically cut short. The visitor called out to the girls, asking them to turn on his flashlight off and on, and they did it every time. And there's videos of this. After that occurrence, it caused him to proclaim, quote, I believe the spirits of all eight victims still dwell within this house. So it may sound unimaginable now, but due to the heinous nature of these crimes and the fact that the town of Villisca only had around 2,000 residents, the crime scene became a full-blown phenomenon. People were like, so intrigued by this they like the Lawson
1: se- and family murders kinda. right and
0: they had never seen or heard anything like this before so eight or sorry 100 people came into the home and started touring it okay that's
1: literally like the Lawson and family murders
0: with the eight victims still in a pool <gasps> on the ground they were still in there
1: oh okay right. a so, little
0: different right so after uh arriving to the scene. Uh, was the town marshal, and he went as far as to let the townspeople even handle the axe and pretend, like take, like pretend to do it. They could handle it, touch it. People were just so intrigued. Which a lot of people were like, "Wow, that contaminated the evidence. Which was this on purpose? Was he trying to cover up the evidence of someone um, in power in that city?" One of the guests even took a piece of jo- uh, Josiah's skull as a little <gasps> keepsake. Oh, I'm gonna take this as a little trinket.
1: Okay, I don't understand the, like, to, is that. Like pretending to—is that like because they were trying to see who could I think actually wield it? Or they were just wielded, so fascinated are they,
0: with it, like they just wanted that's to touch this? Really fucked up, right? So finally, at noon, about three and a half hours after the bodies were found, the Velisca National Guard arrived, and they were finally able to get everybody out. They were like, "Get out!" Like, what the fuck is going on? So authorities then could conduct investigations into who committed these crimes. These eight gruesome acts, murderers—they were in shock. So after doing an investigation on the house, they suspected that the murders happened anywhere between midnight and 5 AM. So bloodhounds were brought in, but with no success because the crime scene had been fully demolished by the townspeople. So investigators found Josiah's pants hanging on his and Sarah's bedpost still containing a wad of cash, a check and his keys. They also found a huge gash in the wall of the parents upstairs bedroom. So it's believed that the gash on the wall was made by quote, the upswing of the axe with significant force. So basically standing on the bed, clipping the ceiling as he's coming down on them.
1: Did he just hit each person once?
0: No. It's like bludgeoned over and over again. So, oddly enough, there was clothing that was placed over the mirror that hung on the bed, like uh, on the wall above the bed, like where you would have like a headboard. So, a lot of people were like, Was the murderer close to the family and was ashamed of what he was doing and didn't want to see him, you know, doing mm-hmm. these acts? Um, to add, all of the victim's faces had been covered with clothing or bedding after being killed. And at some point, the murderer is also believed to have closed all the windows um, and all the mirrors in the house as well. So he did not want anybody to see, obviously. He didn't want to see their faces.
1: Maybe he didn't want to see himself.
0: Right, exactly. So further inv- uh, evidence reveals that Josiah was the only victim that was killed with the sharp end of the axe. All seven others died by being bludgeoned with the blunt back edge of the axe. Josiah had been beaten so badly that his eyes were missing from his (gasps) head. So, like I said, the ceiling in the room above the bed had a huge gouge mark, and I have pictures of it where the murderer, they think, again, he was standing on top of the bed and clipping it as he was coming down on him. So to this day, the house is still set up the way it was back in the day, and you can still see the huge gash in the wall.
1: Is there blood still? <laughs> no.
0: So among the cigarette butts and bloody footprints, investigators also found food on the kitchen table where the murderer had fixed themselves something to eat before exiting out the front door, locking it and taking the house key with them. Stumped as to who this could possibly be, the case went cold for a while. So getting into some of the hauntings as well. So whoo. So years later after the murders, the home began to experience some spooky and paranormal sights and sounds. The home's caretaker, Johnny Hauser, would have another encounter originating in the kitchen that would stop him dead in his tracks. Johnny, who has stated that he was very much a skeptic prior to working at the house, said, quote, so this is his experience. He said, I'm up in the kids' room and I locked the kitchen door so nobody could walk in. As I'm up there, somebody or something walked in the house. I could hear them enter. So Johnny goes on to say, quote, so positive it's someone trespassing that, he de- that I decide to pull a prank that will set them straight. So he hides in the closet of the children's upstairs bedroom and waits until, quote, finally he, whoever the intruder is, goes upstairs into the room I'm in. I kick open the door and I scream, nothing. Nothing at all. Johnny said, quote, As soon as I see there's nothing, it just sucked the air right out of me, like I got the wind knocked out of me. Something evil is in that house.
1: And this was the guy, he worked for the yeah. family? Yeah, so What's he no, he didn't work for the oh. family. This
0: is afterwards because it was a bunch of different things. Like people could visit it. It was kind of like a museum. Oh, people okay. Owned it, but he was like the caretaker of the house. Okay. So while some investigations suggest the presence of the family in the house, Multiple others suggest that the house is haunted by the killer themselves. So investigators from the show Kindred Spirits picked up an EVP response to the question, quote, did you do something to this family? And the response on the EVP recorder was, yes, I killed them. So a medium also entered the house and she felt the immediate presence of the killer, describing him as, quote, giddy about what he was going to do. She also mentioned that his favorite type of person was the type that was weak and easy, easily manipulated like, quote, putty in his hands. Okay. So back to the investigation for a little bit. So what investigators hypothesized was that the murderer had gained access to the Moore family home by removing the screen of a first floor window. However... Evidence at the scene made this method of entry seem not accurate and instead suggested a far more terrifying theory. It was later and strongly suggested that the murderer was most likely hiding in the Moores family attic, waiting for the family to get home that night from church. He was also up there with Josiah Moores' axe, so that's where he had kept it. So, a little bit more haunting so in a documentary two guys went up into the attic because remember that's where they thought that the murder was. Were they the
1: BuzzFeed guys? Yes. I love them.
0: So they set up an EVP machine and they got a response so they asked who's up here and they got a response quotes I'm in here and then they said jokingly we hear you like it up here and it said I am miserable helpless
1: you think I was just So people think that's Josiah?
0: No they think that that's the killer. Well, because Josiah didn't kill anybody. He ain't the killer. But he didn't
1: say that he killed anyone. He just said he was hopeless.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, you're right. Oh, it could be. But they think it's the killer because that's where the killer was, like, hiding. So, no event indicating the killer's presence remaining in the house was clearer than what happened in 2014. So, on November 7th, the caretaker <laughs> greeted his overnight guests that evening upon arrival. So, one of the guests was a man in his 50s along with his elderly parents. When they arrived, uh, the caretaker noticed that the man was carrying a large hunting knife on his belt. Not thinking much of it, he checked them in and made sure they were settled and then proceeded to leave for the night. Because you can kind of stay overnight. I'm thinking it's more of like a little bed Fun and breakfast. Exactly. So... And a lot of people came to this house for like a hunt, like a ghost hunt. So the next morning, the caretaker heard that the man uh, was apparently at some point in the house of and he had been stabbed in the downstairs bedroom the night before. The knife had been jabbed into his chest and he lay in a pool of his own blood until he was found. The man's injuries were labeled as, quote, self-inflicted, but miraculously, the man survived the attack and even returned to the home years later. When he was asked about what happened that night, all the man could remember was going into the bedroom with the goal of provoking the spirits, and the next thing he knew, he was waking up bloody in the emergency room. His wife did it. So, well, he didn't go there with his wife. He went there with his parents, and they weren't there.
1: Oh, I thought these were the parents. Okay.
0: So the caretaker noted that the first thing that the man did when he returned was apologize to the house for his behavior. He was Mm -hmm. like, I'm so sorry that I came in here with bad intent. I want to apologize. It won't happen again. Okay. So the caretaker stated that he doesn't believe a ghost stabbed the man, but he does think that perhaps the house has a dangerous effect on people. And their mental state while inside. Also, to note the axe used in the murders, originally owned by Josiah himself, was found in the very room in which the stabbing happened. Mm-mm. So, now let's get into the murders, the suspected uh, murderers, okay? Okay. So, again, this is a small town of 2,000 people, and it was quoted that. Quote at some point everybody became a target, especially the people who were unaccounted for for the night of the murder. So like if you didn't have an alia, or um, like an alibi, okay. you were fucked. So one of the guys, Andrew Sawyer, he was one of those people, and they interrogated him time and time and time and time again. But he, um, eventually, they could not prove that it was him. Just
1: because he didn't have an alibi? Yeah, he
0: didn't have one. So next, we have Reverend Kelly George. Uh Now, Kelly was an English-born traveling minister in town on the night of the murders. Kelly was described as peculiar, reporting have suffered a mental breakdown as a young adult. As an adult, he was accused of being a, quote, peeping Tom and was caught several times asking young women and girls to pose nude for him. Ew! Ew! On June 8th, 1912, he came to Villisca to teach the children's day camp, which, if you remember, the Moore family attended and set up on June yeah. 9th. He left town the next day between 5 a.m. and 5.50. Remember, it was said that the murders happened around that time.
1: Well, that's when they were discovered, right? right. Well, they were uh,
0: around uh, 7. seven. So on June tenth, nineteen twelve, hours before the bodies was discovered, Reverend Kelly confessed to the murders in court. But the jury did not believe his confession. You know how some people just say that. Yes. So in the weeks that followed, he displayed a a fascination with the case and wrote many letters to the police, investigators, and the family of the deceased. This aroused suspicion, and a private investigator wrote back to Reverend Kelly asking for the details. Of that uh, that the minister might know about the murders that no one else would. And, of course, he replied with great detail, but there was no um, proof that what he was saying. You know, he was like, oh, and then I went up there, and I did this, and I did this, but, of course, there's no proof, right? Yeah. So his known mental illness made authorities question whether he knew the details because of having committed the murders or if he was sick in the head and was just wanting those things to have happened. Right. Okay. So in 1914, two years after the murders, Kelly was arrested for sending obscene material through the mail. So he was actually harassing a woman who applied for his job as a secretary. Um, he was sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, the National Mental Hospital, which is in Washington, D.C. Investigators speculated that Kelly could have been the murderer of the Moore family at this point. So in 1917, Kelly was arrested for the Velisca murders. Police obtained a confession from him. However, he followed many hour, follow, it followed by many hours of interrogation. And uh, Kelly later said, oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't do it. I made all of it up. So after two separate trials, he was acquitted. <laughs> he was okay. like, oh, never mind, fam. Jail ain't for me. I, I was just kidding. So, and they also, a lot of people. Guys, we just had to stop recording for a second because I kid you not. So first of all, we're in, and I'm sorry to derail, we're in my closet and I just set up this like recording studio with like all of our creepy books in it we're recording bitch the fucking lights went off I'm not even kidding and kept <laughs> flickering and I was like hello and they went off again and Emily and I started crying and I'm not even joking <laughs> so like
1: and what? we have a comforter draped over
0: us like and we being made a, held by our heads we made a fort so I'm literally shaking and shitting at the same time so <laughs> let's go on to our next victim um, so next, we have Frank Fernando Jones. So Frank was a Velisca resident in an oh, I, N, N, Ohio... Oh my God! An Iowa State Senator, <laughs> Josiah Moore, had worked for the Frank Jones, had worked for Frank Jones and mm-hmm. at his implement store for many years before leaving it open, um, leaving it to open up his own store. Okay. So Moore reportedly took business away from Jones, including a very successful John Deere dealership. So <gasps> Moore was rumored to also have had a sexual affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, <gasps> though no evidence support this. So they thought it was him just because you know, they were business partners and then uh Josiah broke off and stole one of his clients and then the his sexual daughter
1: in law, so like his son's or daughter's wife? Right. So I mean let's geez. be real, they probably oh, no, 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 more
0: have, oh yeah, yeah, exactly so oh, for sure. But yeah, <laughs> no, so like a lot of like sexy time and a lot of like funky business was going on. So they thought that maybe Frank Bernardo Jones was just mad and headed out to get Josiah. Okay. So up next was William Mansfield. So another theory was that Senator Jones, the guy that we were just mm-hmm. talking about, hired William Mansfield to murder the Moore family. So okay. nine months before the murder at the Moore family house, a similar case of an axe murder co- occurred in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Two axe murderous cases followed in Ellsworth, Kansas, and Paola, Kansas. So these are all around the same time. The cases were very similar enough to raise the possibility of having been committed by the same person. Other murders reported as possibly being linked to these crimes included the numerous unsolved axe murders along the specific uh, railroads. That's Southern what I was going to ask. Right. From ni- and those happened between 1911 and 1912. And then also, the unsolved axemen of New Orleans ha- uh, killings happened at that same time. He just so, got
1: really creative there. Right,
0: so axe murders were like a thing of this time, and they were just trying to loop them all together. So the murders in Colorado Springs were closely related in execution of those to the House. H.C. Wayne, his wife and child, and Miss A.J. Burnham were found dead and murdered with an axe. Much like the more family murder, bed sheets were used to cover the windows and prevent passengers from or passerbys by looking passers by yeah. but from from looking in. And they also covered all of the faces of the victims with the bed clothes and the sheets as well, just like this axe murder.
1: I like that they were dead and murdered.
0: Oh, baby. Triple hit. Or double hit. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still a little choked up from the experience. Right? So, Mansfield was also the prime suspect of the Burns Detective Agency of Kansas City and Detective James Newton Wilkinson, who suggested he was a cocaine-addicted serial killer and went on to kill many more families in the same manner. Wilkerson stated that he could prove that Mansfield was present in each of the uh, differing crime scenes on the night of the murders. In each murder, the victims were hacked to death with an axe, and the mirrors, like I said, were covered in the same fashion. Okay. Wilkerson managed to convince a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916, and Mansfield was arrested and brought to Montgomery County from Kansas City. Payroll records, however, proved an alibi that placed Mansfield in Illinois at the time of the Velisca murders. He was released for lack of evidence and later won a lawsuit that he brought against Wilkerson and was rewarded only $2,000, which I'm sure at that time was a hot load. (laughs) (laughs) So, lastly, it was reported that Sam Moyer, who was Josiah's brother-in-law, often threatened to kill Josiah Moore. However, upon further investigation, Moyer's alibi cleared him from the crime. So, they were just like, oh, this guy hated him. It was probably him. Didn't happen. So, the Velisca Axe murders remain one of the most infamous cold cases in American history. We will never know what took place in the Moore family home on the night of June 1912, which tragically resulted in the loss of eight innocent lives, or if the tragic victims of that gruesome and brutal crime still roam the place they once called home over a 100 years ago. So, just as background... You were still able to visit the Moore family home. It still stands in its same uh, state, mm-hmm. um, but it has a big sign on it that says Feliska House Murders. Um, so the new owners have kept it in the same state that it was in the night of the murder. So there has been some few and minor renovations, but as far as like the beds and everything, the the China, it's all still the same setup as it was before. Hmm. So you're allowed to take day tours as well as spin the night. So you can bring up to 10 guests and everybody can have like a sleepover. Um, They said it's like the best to do around like seven so you're not cramped because it's kind of a small home, but you can have up to 10. And people have been reported feeling um like touching as they walk by,
1: you know those people that own it are have little peepholes, and then they're touching right. everybody,
0: so they felt uh touching, pushing, um they've even heard like whispers and laughing of children. Some of the girls have had their hair pulled, um and there's been numerous ghosts and sounds caught on camera as well mm. so in the end, whether the Velisca X murder house is haunted by those who lost their lives that night or if the property itself is haunted by the evil murder, sadly, this case will remain unsolved. And I'm pretty fucking sure if it happened nowadays, we would have caught the, the yeah. person. I personally think it's that creepy fucking man, the, the Reverend Kelly.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, I think it's really... Which makes sense because he was a traveling reverend, right? So he could have... I mean, did they... See if he went to those other places,
0: right? And it also, I think it might be somebody who just is a serial killer and just stumbled in there because, yeah, I don't they knew everybody in the t- It must have been somebody that was just a passerby. I don't
1: think it was personal to especially just the dad because why would they kill all those little kids? I know it's just a little strange. And it also
0: sucks that little Lena and Ina were just been in the night, like it's like the Keddie
1: Cabin murders.
0: Oh, yeah, um. Why did you
1: look at me like that? I thought I
0: heard something. I'm scared. Oh, my God. Can we please leave? All right, well, that is the end of our first segment of the 30-minute Manor Mystery. If you have any um, unsolved cases that you would like for us to cover, feel free to send them to us, and we'd be glad to look into it. Thank you so much. Love and kisses. I want to get out of here. Bye. (laughs)